Well, I'm sitting here with David Raymond. Uh, David, thanks for being on the program today. Uh, Dan, my, my pleasure. I, I, I love talking shop, and uh, it's great to be around people that uh, really value what, what mascots do in our industry. Well, you've got a lot of cool little uh, bona fides here because you have, uh, you know, you, you are, you're part of the Mascot Hall of Fame. Um, you you uh, design and create and kind of tutor the next generation of mascots. You've been doing this as a business uh, for several years now. And on top of that, you started out, I mean, you were in the suit. You were the Philly fanatic for 15 years. Isn't that right? Yeah, and it was, and it certainly wasn't a, um, something that I planned on doing. It was, it was a lot of uh, luck, perfect storm, whatever. Um, the, you know, the confluence of a lot of uh, random things that came together. But it was really a, a matter of my father, who uh, was a longtime football coach. I played football for him at the University of Delaware, um, and he knew that I wanted to be a coach. And he was trying to convince me to get a, a degree in business so that I'd have more flexibility and. I, you know, I pushed back and wanted to get a degree in physical education because I knew I wanted to coach. And he finally said, okay, let me help you get a job with the Phillies because he knew the ownership of the Phillies. And I, I worked for them for two summers as an intern. And the, and the third summer that was coming up, they, um, we could certainly get into that, but they had decided they wanted to create this character and they weren't sure what it was going to look like yet, but they needed somebody who would commit to stay for all the games. They, they came to me and said, will you stay? You know, you're graduating from college will you stay for all the games? We'll pay you $25 a game. And, and that's how it started. And, and so there was no training. There was no pre-planning. The Phillies actually thought it was going to be a, a, you know, a failure because, you know, it was a 300 pound green furry Muppet that was going to entertain the same fans that booed Santa Claus and the Easter bunny. And, right. you know, so it all, it all just, it, it fell into place and became one of those uh, hugely successful things without much of a plan. And, and that doesn't normally happen in life, but, but it did, and, and I was lucky to be there. You know, it's kind of funny because it was a weird time because this was in, what, like 76, right? In 1978. I started in 76, and 78 was when, they, when the Fanatic was born. But got it, it, I got it. It was, it was a weird time in sports and, 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 a, and a really change, uh, a change time for the Phillies. Yeah, well, it's funny because there, this is like where, you know, the, the, where um, mascots, it was just kind of like this weird fertile ground for this kind of thing because, you know, uh, Ched, Ted Giannoulis was doing the San Diego Chicken, kind of a, you know, similar story, kind of thrown into the whole thing. His was unrelated to baseball. He kind of related it to baseball. The Philly Fanatic was created specifically for the team, um, you know, because of the success of the San Diego Chicken. And that you know, and then the Philly Fanatic is still going on today, extremely successful, and it kind of like spawned all of these mascots that like sprouted up like weeds across the country. Um, you know, was, what was that time like? Why why was it so specific to that you know mid seventies time period? Well, I, I think it, it really you go back to to uh, saying that it was Ted Giannoulis and and the brilliance of his performance inside a very simple costume at the time, um, and it was. Um, you know, his ability, whether it was planned or not to be just incredibly talented in that costume. And it was a time when sports was looking for other ways to draw fans, to create fans. And uh, the Phillies were on the forefront of that type of silly, spontaneous entertainment. They, they did a lot of things that certainly were not mascot related, but they were uh, value added pieces. So when a young executive, Dennis Lehman, who now is, uh, you know, one of the, the head uh, executives with the um, 
Cleveland Indians. He was working for the Phillies, had was a young executive with the Phillies, had gone on a West Coast swing and saw the chicken and came back to Bill Giles, who who really was the father of silliness and, and fun promotions. And and Denny came to Mr. Giles and said, we better have a mascot because you, you're not going to believe with what's what's happening in San Diego. They're not watching the game. They're watching this mascot. And at the time, the Padres were an expansion club and they were in the same boat. We, we need to do something different. And Ray Kroc owned the team and uh, you know, built his fortune with, with McDonald's franchises. And, and he, he just, uh, they were all looking for something. And this bubbled up uh, naturally, it, virally. You know, it was the, it was the viral uh, entertainment of its day. Um, and, and so the Phillies really took advantage of it when on the East Coast, Again, because there was not the proliferation of video like there is today, and certainly from a social media, there, there wasn't. So the, the East Coast didn't know much about the chicken at that point. So, you know, we kind of fell into the same uh, category, and it started to become really connected to the fans very, very quickly. And so it was really, I think, the, 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 the advent of the chicken and the success it was having with building baseball fans in, who were not baseball fans. They, they came for the fun. And then they, and then what baseball realized, if they come for the fun, they'll see the game and they start to really become fans of the game. And, and, and then it, everyone was trying to do something similar. And in, in life, people are, you know, organizations are like lemmings. They see something that's right. working yeah. and they all navigate towards it and they do their own version of it. And some are successful. Um, and I think the Phillies were successful because they said, we're going to do this right. It may be silly. It may be stupid, but we're, we're going to make sure we get to the right people and say, how do we do this right? And and he called Jim Henson, Bill Giles called Jim Henson and, and actually got Jim Henson on the phone and Jim directed him to Bonnie Erickson. And that's how the fanatic was designed. And, and everything else was, this is going to be fun, but we're going to make sure we're, we're making it serious fun. We're doing we're, we're, there's a method to it. Let's figure out a way to do it right. You know that's a really good explanation. I think you kind of hit it right on the head. But how did you know? And the other really important thing you mentioned there is that I think people forget is that there wasn't social media. It wasn't like the San Diego Chicken was a national phenomenon necessarily. You know, people who maybe were into baseball knew of him, but he wasn't. You know, it wasn't like it would be today with viral video. So you were kind of it. It, it, it was the. I don't mean to interrupt. It was yeah. the players. So look, take, look at the players as the conduit to that social media is today. The players would go into San Diego. They would see this crazy uh, guy in a chicken suit guzzling beers and grabbing women. <laughs> and they were running back <laughs> home going, oh, my gosh, you should see what's going on. You can't wait till you get, you know, wait till you see the chicken in San Diego. And then they did the same thing when the Fanatics started getting uh, connected with the players and that they would, they would, and the umpires, they'd all talk about it. And then the organizations would hear about it. And then, the organization executives would go see it, and then that, and that's how it proliferated. That it was that was the ah. communication technique between. And then you know, of course, organizations would share some successes that they had from marketing and and promotions at their at their yearly meetings, and and that's how it it worked. And then and and I'll have to you know the Phillies should take credit for you know having um, uh, women and taking advantage of women in cute outfits. They had the hot pants patrol were our usherettes and they were, they that's had not, the high. That's not what they were called. Is it? Oh yeah. They were called <laughs> back in the days when political correctness was not an issue. Oh my they were God. called the hot pants patrol and they were dressed in, they were very, they were tame sure. even, even 
uh, in today's or in their world, it was a little bit risque, but not much. There right. were high white boots, you know, the patent leather white boots and and, uh, you know, these these pants suits that were and hot pants were big then. And so you saw a lot of leg and that was about it. And uh, but they were the hostesses and the usherettes throughout the whole stadium. And then so the proliferation of of uh, of dance teams and the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders all of that came from what Bill Giles was doing with, you know, the hot pants patrol and Bill Giles helped build the Astrodome. So, you know, all this fun and silly parts of the Astrodome was some of the brilliance of, of Bill Giles. So, so, you know, everyone looked and saw and said, we've got to do our version of that. And then the mascot was certainly part of that generation. And so they kind of just tossed you into the suit. Like what inspired you? Cause you, you know, you did a lot of unique stuff, a lot of fun stuff. You're riding around on an ATV shooting hot dogs with people what kind of inspired you? What was, what was, you know, was it scripted or well, did my, you have your own thing? No, no. I, a matter of fact, no one told me what to do. I was, I actually got concerned when I realized no one was telling me, said, Hey, we're going to get started. Right. The costume <laughs> got delivered. I put it on and I went to Bill and said, what do you want me to do? And, and he, he, he didn't look like he knew what he wanted me to do. And I thought, the shoulders, right? yeah. I'm the, yeah, I'm the sacrificial lamb. And he said, go have fun. And, and if you're not having fun, it won't work. And, and, and as i tore out of his office he screamed g-rated fun so so he understood wait a minute i just told a college kid that his prime directive was to have fun let's make sure you know it's family oriented and all of my inspirations were the three stooges uh the slapstick comedy um daffy duck uh, foghorn leghorn the, the coyote and the roadrunner those were all uh, and the gong show at the time was starting was, was a huge show it came very quickly in the in the early eighties. Um, and you know, all of that was my inspiration music. Uh, we were on the edge of the disco era. Um, and you know, that was the, the you know, that was the, uh, the dance of the day, the music of the era. And so I pulled all those together. And then of course I was a Phillies fan. So I understood mm. the heartbeat of, the, I understood why we were misinterpreted and misrepresented and as nasty people. We weren't nasty. We were just passionate and we were smart about our, our baseball and, you know, so I I mixed that all together, and 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 what got spit out was the fanatics personality that remains today. It was just um, very frenetic and and hyperactive and uh, and very passionate about the Phillies colors and very uh, uh, very aggressive towards the opposing colors and 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 teams. Um, and it was it was just a, a mixed with a lot of. Um, brotherly love. I mean, it really is the truth. I mean, there is a mixture of that. And, um, and so that's how I was inspired. And I, I loved to dance. I, I didn't drink when I was a kid in high school. And so that meant all the girls wanted to dance with me because I wouldn't throw up on their feet. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was just, that was what I did. And I, so I, whatever you talk to comedians and entertainers that, that are involved in some sort of spontaneous type of performance. And they'll say, I just did what I liked. And, hoping that that would resonate with the crowd. And since I was a Phillies fan, a lot of what I liked and disliked every universally, everybody universally got it in that audience. And so it connected. Well, it sure did connect. I mean, you were, you were an icon in the city for 15 years, you know, I mean, you really made this thing and and it was unique, you know, outside of other mascots. So that's, you know, that was kind of the key to this whole thing is it's unique to the city. Um, You had your own little style, Uh, but then you left. How come, what made you decide to leave? Well, that and that's interesting. Is a mixed of mixture of business um, acumen and and 
and some of my um, psychological feelings. I mean, if you, you talk to somebody, I'm sure he talked to Susan Lucci and said, weren't you tired of playing that same character um, on, on television for all those years? And, and she'll say in one breath, no, no, it was the best thing in my life. And, um, you know, I, I owe it all to that character. But at the same time, you get tired. You get emotionally spent on it. And I was, um, I was kind of roll out the ball for a while my last few years. And um, I, I just that was part part of it. I would have I, I would have stayed if I didn't have the other opportunity. The other opportunity was traveling around all throughout minor league baseball and seeing that there was an opportunity to build a business. And um, so I and it was again wasn't my plan to build a business. I went to the people who designed the fanatic and said, I want to create my character. What would it cost? Because I wanted to travel around minor league sports and entertain. And they uh, they said, well, we won't charge you anything if you go into business with us. So for the next nine years after I left the Phillies, or, or actually eight years, so I, I left the Phillies in 94. So act, technically it was 16 years I was with them. I left in, in 94 to start my own business. So it was, it was really a drive to um, figure out a way of how I could earn a living without being in costume. And, and that was really the, the – the emotional issue was I was kind of tired. I wanted to do something new. I had a chance to be an entrepreneur. I wasn't sure what that meant, but um, I said, I got to figure out a way to make money and not perform because at some day the Phillies would say, okay, you're too old to do this. And we're going to put you behind this desk and this is what you're going to do. And, and I still have great friends, the Phillies. I have a wonderful relationship with them. There was never any bad blood. They, they took great care of me financially. I just wanted to do something else. Now, I was reading in an interview that you you were kind of interested in, in having a proprietary stake in the Philly because you had kind of given a lot and kind of created the character. Um, is that true? And did, how did they respond to that? Well, it certainly it was true, but I never I never had a belief that I I deserved that because there was precedent. There was legal precedent done by Clayton that was a Clayton Moore tried to sue for the rights for the Lone Ranger, and he, that case struck him down and and didn't rule in his favor. And from any time forward, it set all of the legal precedents for the, the organization that creates and funds the development of the character is the owner and the, and the actor does not uh, earn any rights. Uh, now the, the chicken was a little different because that, that costume was physically changed by, by Ted and his mom. Um, and it, and it looked markedly different from when he started to when he finished and then won the rights to it. So, I had no, I had no thought that I would try to fight for any right. I knew I didn't own any, and I wasn't going to. So um, I, I never went to the Phillies and suggested I, I deserve that. And the Phillies financially took great care of me, paid me a lot of money. So, so that was not um, something I felt that I, I that was not nothing I ever asked the Phillies to do. I just knew that I wouldn't own it. And um, you know, my last discussion with them was to create an office for the fanatic to drive merchandise and sales through the fanatic. And they said that that's not necessarily what they wanted to do at that time. And so I said, okay, um, then, then, then I, I was prepared to leave um, because I didn't think they were thinking the way I was thinking. And, um, and it was good for both of us. It really was. It was, but the, the gentleman that's performing now is still one of my best friends and, Tom Burgoyne, and he's been the, the main performer there longer than I have, and the Fanatic has continued to grow and proliferate and do great things, and, and I'm proud to say that I was, you know, I was the one that created the personality, but, you know, the Fanatic is, is bigger than, than any of the performers that have been there, so um, it was a good decision all around. 
You know, that's a, that's an interesting thing because I do understand what you're saying. What, what I what I I'm kind of extremely impressed is that you had this kind of long vision, right? Because like Ted Giannoulis, he made a whole career out of doing this. He's still doing the San Diego Chicken at forty, you know, forty two years in, um, you know, and that was kind of his path. But I think you saw, you know, an opportunity to create little Philly fanatics all over. You kind of franchised in a weird yeah. way. You gave people an opportunity to kind of create the magic that was happening in all these cities. Um, Cause now you do that for other people. Yeah. I think well, that's a wonderful way to put it. Yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate you saying it that way because for me, I, you know, I was always about sharing. It wasn't protecting. I didn't feel like I had any proprietary rights to a particular routine or a skit. I, I think in stand up comedy, there's so much, um, uh, so much passion about owning your own material. And, and I never felt a prior, you know, cause it was all slapstick. It was, it was in, it was common universal comedy. And, um, I loved to share and it started out. The, the reason why I, I started to realize I had a business to do is that I had people coming to ask me to please have some sort of a training seminar, which I did eventually after people, enough of my friends that were in this business started telling me that they needed it. And one of my friends actually got ripped off by going to a particular camp that really wasn't worth the money. And, when he told me about it, I said, okay, that was the, my, my impetus to, to put together a training seminar, which we've been doing for, uh, gosh, 26 years now. That's your mascot and, boot camp, you know, right? So, yeah, yeah, right. And, and so then, you know, I, I talked to performers every day. I was just talking to a performer from Westchester University, called me. We, we talked for half an hour. He wanted to know, what can I do? I'm not getting much support here. And I love that because, you know, I didn't have anything like that when I started. Um, I just had my boss said, go have fun, you know, and we learned from there. And so what I try to do is all the stuff that I learned uh, all that time for free, I don't have a problem giving it away uh, for young people for no charge, because what that does is it, it continues to lay the groundwork for us being experts. And, and it really has grown because of our passion to help and our understanding that you need to do it the right way. And and that's why the business has grown. So, and I appreciate the way you laid out there, you know, dropping little eggs, you know, for a chicken reference, we, we dropped little eggs all over the place <laughs> and they've hatched. And, and frankly, some of those people I've taught are competitors of mine. <laughs> right. They're taking business away from me and I'm going, well, you know, that's, that's part of, you know, why you do it. You want people to be successful and you want people to, to do their own thing. And, and hey, if they grow up and compete against me, good. It makes me better. I got I got to be better than the people I taught. Then and, and uh, so, but I'm I'm proud of that. Well, so let, no, no, let me challenge you on that for a second because you said that you you give it away for free, but you don't. You've built a very successful business on training people. I mean, you don't do that for free, right? I mean, your your business. No, is, yeah, you know, true. Yeah, I get. My point was that when you have a spirit of willing to give important, valuable information away for people that are in need of it and, and can't afford it, that it comes back to you. It, it's, it's, it's not dislike karma um, or unlike karma. Okay, it, I, I you, see what you mean. So I've always felt I want to share. And then, yeah, I mean, we just got, we, we've got paid very good money to go over to work with the Manchester city uh, European football uh, uh, brand and, and help them with their mascot program. And I've formed a great relationship with them and certainly they pay very well. Uh, <laughs> but what, what we but what we give them is exceptionally valuable. They take and turn what we show them how to do, and they have the resources to really leverage it. They're making a lot of money because of, of some things that, and they're about to make a great deal of money 
because of some of the things that they're now doing that they weren't doing before. Um, so now, what, what does your company so do? Yeah, like, more about what, what is like what exactly do you do? Like, are you um, so when someone hires you, when 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 Manchester hires you, what are they bringing you in to do? Well, we we stay, you'll laugh at this. We we have a mascot doctor brand, which is our consulting wing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we have we 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 start with a mascot intervention. Um, and we come in and we've got syringe pens and we've got, uh, they got a picture of me in a rubber glove, put on a rubber glove. And I say, relax, this isn't going to hurt. Uh, so we, we have some fun with the brand, but we come in and we sit around basically what we're doing in a, you know, in the dry, uninspired verbiage of marketing, we do a brand reset or we do a brand evaluation and we go in and say, what are you doing now? What's working um, who are you targeting? We go through all of that. And then we, then we discuss it in terms of a, of a character brand. And it's not, not just a kid in a costume. It's a, it's a, it's a character brand. So you're not just doing things with live appearances. You're immersing yourself in the story of the character so that from that story comes authentic components that help you reach your audience. And then the beauty of a mascot is that you're entertaining your audience while you're delivering a message. So we go, we do all of that. That's what we do. We sit down and we talk to all their stakeholders and brand managers and the people who understand the, the corporation from a brand standpoint and a marketing standpoint. And we, and if they have a mascot, we talk about how are you using it and how else should you be using it? If they don't have one, we learn what their story is, what's their brand promise. And we help them write a backstory for a character before they even know what it's going to look like. And from that story creates images or thoughts that create images that then you build on those images in sketches and you go through a design process. You select a two-dimensional design. You manipulate that through um, finished artwork. They start to to tease the, the character. They leak out parts of the story while we're building a costume. And then we roll it out as a live character. And then we continue to work with them on taking that backstory and creating um, brand messages that will, will drive revenue. And it's all about creating uh, raving fans and, not, and fans both from a corporate standpoint and a sports standpoint. We're, we're creating raving fans. There's a great book called Raving Fans um, about it, you create this emotional connection through the backstory and through their love of the brand, or you make them love your brand or teach them to love your brand. And that's what a, a character is a wonderful tool inside of that type of marketing. And so you guys do it. So you you basically do from design to construction, right? Like you, because so you just kind of come up with a story, uh, work with them to come up with a guide backstory, and then you create it, you know, basically out of thin air uh, up to the costume, right? It's top to bottom. Yes, but but what the beauty of the backstory, and and you know, you if you talk to Jim Henson or Walt Disney, they they're the ones that taught this. That if you create a story that that is part of your constituents' story, and they care then your, your mascot will already be a success before they even know what it looks like. So the story is the genesis of all of the, the successful creation. In other words, if somebody says, David, we need a mascot, you wow me. I'll go, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, what wows me may not wow you. I might love skydiving and you're scared to death of heights, so it's not going to work. That's fair. We need to sit down and find out who you are and, and, and who your, your customers are and what your company is and what your community is. When we find out those things, we're going to start to be able to tell a story that will wow your audience, which is what you want to do. So, so it's, that's the hard work is, is they know what they want. They just don't know it. So you have to teach them how to figure out what they want. And then, then, then our, our, our artist comes in and starts drawing. 
but we don't draw anything until we get there. So there's a process that you walk through. So in Manchester City's situation, they had a character brand that they just weren't manipulating. They weren't immersing themselves in the character brand. And we said, you got to tell a better story and you got to start showing this character in different ways. It's not just a person in a costume. And it amazes me when a, when a brilliant company like that nods their heads in those meetings and go, oh, that's a great idea because it's so easy for me to see it because we've done it for so long. And most companies just don't see it in those simple ways. And then when you show them, then their, their brilliance comes in. They go, oh, I get it now. Now I'm doing this and this and this and this. And it, and it becomes a really powerful character brand. And so how many of these have you created with your company? We, uh, so we started in, in 2000, January 2000, and at last count, I could be a little off, we were, we were somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 80 characters from scratch, and then um, you know, well over 1,000 organizations that we've worked oh, with. Oh, wow. Oh, so like, rebrand, like redesigning, kind of tweaking and turning the knobs yeah. and everything, kind of amping it up for other, brand, other yeah, existing so, characters. So, yeah, so some what we're, we're working on. 17 years of doing that. I mean, I, obviously I was a performer for, um, for about the same amount of time uh, leading up to that decision. And my first go round in business with my partners lasted for eight years and I still was performing and we had one character. So from 2000 till, till right now leading into the end of 16, we, you know, done 75 to 80 characters and, but, but close to a thousand clients that we've worked with on for all the way from $300 to, to well over six figures in terms of a delivery. That's, that's incredible. Uh, that is just incredible. I mean, so there's the segue before we run out of time. Uh, you have thousands of characters you've created and now you're a part of the mascot hall of fame. Uh, is that a conflict of interest given your current profession and how many of yours end up in the hall of fame? <laughs> well, first of all, we do have a process. I, I okay, can't all right, just anoint. All right, good, good. So, so we'll be clear about that. Thank we we you. were careful not to do that, uh, <laughs> but uh, we we created it as a really as a marketing thing to get to to create value for mascots. The ultimate value would be to be inducted into the mascot hall of fame. And in 2005, it started. It was a web-based uh, hall of fame, and really, it was the it was the brilliance of of Whiting, Indiana, and the mayor Joe Stahura there who knew the brand of their city was kind of the little city, little silly, wacky city that could, they, they have the pierogi fest, 300,000 people come into a little town to celebrate drinking beer and eating pierogies. Um, they have 150,000 people come to their 4th of July parade and they wanted to make a statement that they were a fun city. And when they were thinking about an entertainment complex, they said the anchor for this needs to be the permanent mascot hall of fame. And they had done some research and reached out to me about three and a half years ago. And, Lo and behold, in 2017, we're going to open. We're groundbreaking on, on October 21st of this year, and it's going to be the Disney of mascots. It's, it is really going to be an interactive, fun place. We're talking to the brightest, most brilliant people in the industry of, of halls of fames and interactive exhibits and museums, and Jack Roush and Associates is our builder, and it's just going to be fabulous. So, so it is. It is a culmination, really, of a, a relationship between my company, Raymond Entertainment, and the city of Whiting. And I'm telling you, everyone that's hearing this, or reading about it, or seeing it on social media, you have got to plan to come see it when it's opened. It's going to be a marvelous place. We're we're fundraising. We're we're we're, get, we're getting some philanthropic support because it's a nonprofit. And and the town of Whiting is just a, a really really awesome community that 
sits right on the shores of Lake Michigan, overlooks Chicago, the metropolitan statistical area is well over 30 million people. So we have a real chance to make this thing special. So who's coming up on the ballot? next year uh well actually i can't tell you but okay. we're going to introduce that on the 21st of october well, well, look at that 2017 ballot but i can i'll tell you who i really think should be there sure. I, I and i'll throw out a couple i can't tell you that they're going to be on the ballot for sure, sure. but uh in the chicagoland area no one deserves it more than than benny de bull or tommy hawk mm-hmm. um two of their local characters Couldn't agree uh, with you more. nothing to say against southpaw because i think that southpaw has done some great things uh, Clark is actually not available because he's brand new for the Cubs. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what would you think if we had, uh, you know, the actual leprechaun from Notre Dame be on the ballot? Wouldn't that be exciting? <laughs> that would be. Because we'd actually have a human character. <laughs> but outside outside of the waiting or outside of the Chicagoland area, I think the Oregon Duck belongs mm-hmm. on a ballot. Um, you know, and, and there's probably out there people screaming right now, no, no, no. We need, What about this one? There's so many deserving characters, and and uh, so, but I would suggest that it would be prudent of us to focus on a Chicago land mascot that deserves it, and you know you couldn't pick Benny the Bull anybody that's more deserving of the honor. Matter of fact, he should have already been in the Hall of Fame, and as so um, you know the brilliance of their performer, uh, who's been there for a long, long time, uh, who has retired, and he's the one that brought life to to Benny and and Barry. Uh, has just been a wonderful addition to our um, to our fraternity of performers, and you know, so Benny deserves it. And Tommy Hawk certainly, after them winning the Stanley Cups, and and the community work that Tommy Hawk does is just off the charts. I mean, they love him in Chicago, and so so that's I would not be surprised if we had a couple Chicago land mascots on the ballot, and then it opens up to a popular vote. I mean, we have we're going to have voting online and. We have a light. We have a, about a thousand, believe it or not, a thousand lifetime voting members that paid for that privilege back in 2005, and they get the vote. It's important to get their vote in, um, and then we'll do an induction somewhere in November of 2017 when we open the place up. That sounds incredible. Uh, as a Chicagoland native, I couldn't possibly agree more with your instincts, and I do hope that both Tommy Hawk and Benny the Bull end up on the ballot. Uh, no pressure at all. Well, you'll get the vote. <laughs> you may yes. get online and vote. I'm going to go make online. Sure you vote. So. So how do people do this? How do people interact with this? And how can they find you? Well, right now, well, here's the, the ways you can find me. I, I'd, I'd love people to, uh, um, you know, come to the Mascot Doctor Facebook page. If, if you're serious about mascots and performance and want to learn and develop your skills, that's where you should go is our Mascot Doctor Facebook page. You'll, you'll notice that there's only about seven or 800 people that are likes on likes there. Now, anybody can like it, of course, but I've been very careful to tell everybody, hey, if you – you're going to be bored if you don't if you uh, if you want to be entertained. This this is about you know the seriousness of our business. We have some fun there, but it's business. Mascot doctor, uh, you, you said? can follow me. Mascot doctor, if you just type in mascot doctor in the Facebook search, you'll find us. Okay. Um, then follow me on Twitter at um, Emperor of Fun at Emperor of Fun, and that's where we talk about um, the power of fun and and what mascots have taught us about that. But for the mascot Hall of Fame, you just go to mascothalloffame.com. Um, the website is in a transition. We're, we're going to be revamping it shortly, but you can get there and read all about the Hall of Fame, the connection to Whiting, um, and you can learn out. Uh, right now, there's no op- – we're not asking for donations, but, but we will have the crowdsource funding and, and buy a brick type of fundraising as soon as we're done with this silent phase of our fundraising. So anybody that wants to give $5 or whatever they can afford, 
we're going to have an opportunity for you to give to the nonprofit. So it'd be tax deductible. So that hasn't opened up yet, but you can read all about it on the Mass Hall of Fame. Know how we, you can download a, an application and apply for a character to be inducted. We, we actually encourage you to do that. Um, um, and, and anybody can, can find me online at, uh, at, at RaymondEG.com. That's Raymond Entertainment, uh, uh, but it's RaymondEG.com. So if you want to know about our company, Raymond Entertainment, Mascot Hall of Fame is the dot com is the website for Mass Hall of Fame. And but love people to follow me at, at Emperor Fun because we we really talk about the value of fun and and how you can engage that to make yourself happier and healthier. Sounds great. I'm gonna have all these links up on the website and make sure people can find it. Um, and I'll put out a promo when the when the when the voting comes around because I think it's important to to vote in your local elections, be them political or mascot related. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and nothing better than this, this particular time in our country's history to spend some time and vote for mascots because we, because the political arena just may be a little bit too tough to walk into that voting booth. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try to give them a smile uh, when they do it. Well, it's sometimes it's difficult to tell, you know, to tell the difference between the mascots and the political candidates, but I, I think people <laughs> will do their best. Um, David, I want to thank well, you. I, just, I want you to know, I got to promote one. Yeah, thing yeah. Hit quick. it, man. I was, I was in the Philadelphia airport and I saw a Hillary nutcracker. I'm not kidding you. It was an actual, it was an actual Hillary doll that was a nutcracker and you put the nut right between her knees. So I just want, you know, it was one of the funniest gifts I've ever seen. So, so you guys need need to search and find that somewhere online because it's out for sale. All right, David, I want to thank you so much, man. This has been, this has been great. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for spending time with me. Of course, man. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night.